0: In doing so, please turn with me to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. The Holy Spirit writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you open our ears and soften our hearts as we read your holy word. Your word is what brings us life. Your word is from the beginning, and your word is forever. Teach us your truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We pray you bathe us in the gospel and overwhelm us with Christ. We ask you these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All children grow up. I'm sorry, all children except one grow up. You may be familiar with this line. Um, You may have read it to yourself or possibly have heard someone read it to you. This is the opening line in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Uh, Possibly you may be more familiar with Disney's 1953 animated retelling of Barry's tale. In either case, whether you read the book or you saw the movie, Uh, or if you're a parent of small children in the past 10 years and have seen Jake and the Neverland Pirates, you are aware of the villainous pirate Captain Hook. Now, there is one important piece of Captain Hook's characterization from the book that is not strongly highlighted in the cartoon movie. Captain Hook is preoccupied with good form. No matter how much he distanced himself from his school days, this tradition still clung to him, and none more than that of good form. Barry writes, quote, Good form, however much he may have degenerated, he still knew that this is all that really matters. End quote. Good form is all that really matters. And Paul tells us the very same thing in our text. Good form is all that really matters, though it is not our form that matters, but the form of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is the rendering from the ESV. The NRSV says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Paul is giving us an exhortation to have this same mind or attitude that Christ possesses. And how does Paul explain the attitude that's found in Christ? By way of forms, by way of Christ's forms. So we see in verse 6 that Jesus was in the form of God. Jesus is deity, Pastor Bob explained this very clearly to us in his sermon on the preexistence of Christ. His being or exact essence is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Pastor Bob walked us through Christ's eternal position of being God and his unique role in the Trinity. We believe there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is eternally God. He was in the form of God, as Paul writes. So let's not get confused with this word form. It's not like Hanna Barberas of the Wonder Twins, if, if anyone's familiar with that. Shape of an ice ladder, form of a mouse. Alright, what Paul means by form is essential nature. Christ's essential nature is God. It is who he is. It's his identity. Jesus is God. And though Jesus is God, Paul writes he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's an instance where those of you, like me, um, who cannot read the original Greek, may find it a helpful tool to read multiple English translations. Um, Why? Because words like grasped can have multiple meanings in English. I might say, I grasped the concept, meaning I understood the concept. Or I might say, I grasped the pen, meaning I held it in my hand. The NRSV says that Jesus did not count equality with God or did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. And I think exploited fits better Not that the ESV's rendering is wrong. Um, Definitely reading the NRSV helped me to better understand what the ESV meant by the word grasp. Um, But I do think exploited fits better because Jesus could mentally conceive his deity and he did fully possess his deity. Yet what Jesus does not do is exploit his eternal position. And how does he avoid exploiting his form? By emptying himself. There are some who have used this verse to argue that Jesus gave up his godhood uh, and they focus on this phrase, he emptied himself, as if he poured out or cast off his deity. Um, And he, uh, and therefore as a man, Jesus was no longer God. This is known theologically as kenosis theory. Louis Burkhoff has a helpful explanation of this theory in his systematic theology. Um, He writes, quote, This theory evidently resulted from a double motive, namely the desire, one, to maintain the reality and integrity of the manhood of Christ, and two, to throw into strong relief the exceeding greatness of Christ's humiliation, and that he, being rich in our mercies for our sake, became poor while retaining his imminent or moral attributes of absolute power or freedom, holiness, truth, and love, he divested himself temporarily of his relative attributes of omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. But after the resurrection resumed these attributes, end quote. Brothers and sisters, we know this to be heresy. Jesus did not say in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I'm kind of. Uh, I'm missing a few necessary attributes, but don't worry, I'll get them back. No, he said, before Abraham was, I am. We at Christ Community Church should immediately be thinking of Exodus since we're moving through it together as a body. And this is exactly the line that Jesus is wanting you to draw. Jesus is hearkening back to Abraham for one, the father of their faith, but also to Moses at the burning bush where God names himself. I am who I am. Jesus is saying, do you want to know who I am? I am the I am. I called Abraham out of his idolatry. I sent Moses to stand before Pharaoh. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds okay, but you may be reading into this a bit much. The Jews in the temple surely did not think that uh, because the very next thing they do is pick up stones to throw at Jesus. Jesus is telling them that he is creator God. Jesus never once laid down his attributes. Kenosis theory is heresy. Further, we know this by having Scripture interpret Scripture to help us better understand. We use palpable truth to explain more difficult truth. So think, think of John chapter 1. Uh, I, read it, uh, I read part of John 1 earlier, but uh, this is in here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So a more tr- literal translation would be that uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So Joseph Ryan, um, this is helpful, writes, quote, The Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved in and lived with his people. This tabernacle had no meaning apart from Jesus Christ. Its whole purpose in the wilderness was to point forward to the true tabernacle who was to come, the Son of God. End quote. Jesus cannot tabernacle among us unless he maintains his deity. So, all that being said, how does Jesus empty himself? What does Paul mean by this phrase? Because he's not, he's, not he's not emptying himself by emptying himself of the attributes of his deity. No, but actually by taking on the form of a servant. So not only now is Jesus in the form of God, his essential nature, but has now added to that form of a servant. He's added servitude. He has taken on the form of a servant. Jesus says in Mark 10:45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the servant form is realized by Christ taking on human form. Um, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, Paul writes in in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. In these two verses, Paul tells us that Jesus experiences two major events of humanity. We are born and we die. Jesus was born, he was being born in the likeness of men, obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of death. Can you feel the weight of this? Remember back in verse 5, Paul was telling us to have this same mind among ourselves. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Penal substitutionary atonement is discussed often at Christ Community Church because it is an essential component of the gospel. So that we could be made right before God, Christ took on our penalty, God's eternal and just wrath, as our substitute. This was God's, part of God's redemptive plan. And standing in line with Reformed tradition, we believe that this is what the Bible teaches. And since those of us who are in Christ have experienced um, the reality of Christus Victor, that's Christ overpowering evil through his atoning work, we can now experience Christus exemplar. John Piper writes um, in his book Fifty Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, quote, imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. In the experience of Christ himself, they happen together. The same suffering that pardons our sin provides our pattern of love. Quote. So, for those of us who are in Jesus, we need to be dying to our sin daily. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow him. We who are redeemed by the victory of Christ must follow the example of Christ. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He allows himself to be slaughtered. Jesus laid down his own life. Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, John 10, 17 through 18. This is his humility. The creator of all is killed by his handiwork, and Jesus obeys his Father. This is often referred to as Christ's passive obedience. Last week, Pastor Mike explained this very eloquently in a sermon on the life of Christ, narrowing in particularly on the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' baptism is an example of his active obedience. Christ's active and passive obedience are distinguished by different aspects of his work. Fulfilling the precepts of the law is the active obedience of Jesus. We had a blessing of hearing Pastor Mike preach about this in in sermon in regards to Jesus' baptism. If you would like um, uh, Christ's work, sorry, Christ's work paying the penalty for our sin is the example of his passive obedience. If you'd like to learn more about that particular subject, um, the Gospel Coalition has a helpful article written by Justin Taylor titled, What is the Difference Between Active and Passive Obedience of Christ? Here in Philippians, we see illustrated Christ's passive obedience. How can we better understand the passive obedience of Christ? Think of Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Brothers and sisters, how often are we ready to justify ourselves when we are wrongly accused? More so, how ready are we to shift blame when we are rightly accused? Like Adam in the garden, we are too quick to love ourselves and too slow to love God and love people. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Genesis 3.12. Jesus was silent. There are none righteous except one. Jesus was innocent of all sin. He had no blemish and thought, Word or deed. And yet, he humbled himself and died. Not only did he humble himself to the point of death, but Paul writes, even death on a cross. Does not that phrase just ooze with disgrace? Even death on a cross. It's not bad enough that Jesus died unjustly. No, creator God, um, he was slain by the wicked, but furthermore, he was killed by crucifixion, the most dishonorable death. Being 2,000 years removed, it can be difficult for us to understand the weight of what Paul is saying here. Um, But for the Philippians, this is a current reality. Paul's letter to the Philippians is dated approximately A.D. 62. 62. Crucifixion was not abolished by Rome until the 4th century by Constantine, and that was out of reverence to Jesus. Um, Crucifixion was the punishment of criminals, pirates, slaves, or anyone else considered to have no human rights. The king of the universe was killed like a pirate. And what does that mean for us? Because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, for those of us who are trusting in his work, we can have the same mind among ourselves. There is exclusivity to Paul's message. We can only have Christ's mind if we are already in Christ. So what does that mean to be in Christ? How do we have faith? Through knowledge, assent, and trust. We must hear the gospel. We must know that man is fallen in sin. We are totally unable to stand before God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The only way we could be made right was for Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and to live a righteous life. Therefore, being the perfect sacrifice without blemish, Christ could take God's wrath And die our death in our place. He then rose three days later as the firstborn of new creation and will return to judge the living and the dead. We must possess the knowledge of the gospel. But knowledge is not enough. We must assent that this message is true. We can't just be stuck at knowing what the Bible says, but also believe that it actually happened. But that's not even enough to be saved. We must trust this message. We must stake our existence on the truth of the gospel. We must trust in this gospel to have the power to save us from the wrath of God to the wealth of God. If you are not trusting in Jesus, I implore you to give your life to him. Hear the gospel message, repent and believe. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, we have already placed our faith in the saving work of Christ, be encouraged. Paul is giving us what we need. This is the gospel. Christ is the eternal God from the beginning. Christ put on human flesh and lived a truly human life, but without sin. C.S. Lewis actually says that Jesus actually lived a more human life than any human that's ever lived. Why? Because he did so without sin. Just as man was originally created. Christ then died, as is the fate of every son of Adam and daughter of Eve, except he was covered in sin that was not his own. And he was executed, though he was innocent. As the old hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Captain Hook hated Peter Pan. It's pretty clear if you've, if you've seen the movie. Other than the fact that Peter relieved him of his hand, which was soon eaten by a crocodile, that since has not stopped following him, attempting any opportunity to eat the captain. He more so hated Peter because Peter had good form. Peter, like many children, parents in here can attest, did not care about form. Uh, And indeed, it is bad form to care about one's form. Furthermore, Peter has good form because he exhibited fairness. Fairness that was not deliberate but intuitive, and Hook considered that to be good form. Captain Hook hated Peter Peter Pan. Captain Hook would hate Jesus. Jesus, the perfect form, the form of God, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he becomes obedient to the point of death on a cross. Jesus gives up his perfect form to die like a criminal. Captain Hook would loathe Jesus. But Captain Hook would be very wrong. I may even say it could be bad form to execute judgment before the story ends. Three days after the creator gave his life, Jesus walks out of the tomb in a new form, taking on a final form, the form of the firstborn of new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us and keep us. Help us to rely on your provision and trust your word. You have preserved your word and your people, and you will continue to preserve Christ's church until he returns. We have feasted on your word. We have devoured your truth. Help us to be more like Christ through your sanctifying truth. As we come to the table and remember the death of Christ and taste the bread and the wine, elements as real as the body of Jesus that was broken and the blood of Jesus that was poured out for his people. Refresh us with the hope that we have sealed by the Holy Spirit the hope that those who have life in Christ will only experience the first death and experience life eternal following Jesus in the form of new creation. We pray all these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and come to the table.